workouts, I actually find myself thinking about something else entirely. Uh, I find myself thinking about the Christian life. I think about sanctification. I think about how hard it is to make it to heaven, especially in a fallen world. Making it to the end of a hero wad feels very much like trying to make it to that final day. Sometimes it just feels impossible. It feels like you can't possibly keep going. You know, how can I continue to remain sexually pure in this pornified culture? How can I prioritize time with God in a world, in a society that's on the go? How can I battle anxiety when it seems like all the forces of this dreadful place are pressing in on me? Three quarters of the way through Murph, I just want to take my vest off, grab something cold to drink, sit down in the shade, and call it a day. And sometimes that's how I feel about sanctification. Sometimes I just want to stop fighting. You know, I just want to give up, give in, and let the world take over. This morning's text is all about being found holy and blameless at the coming of our Lord. And like the end of a long CrossFit workout, sometimes that day seems so far away. So what are we to do? What what hope is there for us then? Well, speaking about the CrossFit workout, finishing this workout, it really does depend on me. People can cheer me on to motivate me to keep going. People can get me water, give me a towel to dry off. Give me some, you know, one of those little squirt packets, you know. People can even shame me into keep going, you know. Don't embarrass yourself. Keep going. But at the end of the day, I either have it in me or I don't. At the end of the day, no one can carry me across the finish line. I have to make it across in my own strength. Well, friends, the good news that I have for you this morning is that you making it to the last day is not like that at all. The good news that I have for you this morning is that according to this text, according to this benediction from Paul, our ability to make it to heaven depends ultimately not on us, but on God who called us to himself. So let's read about that together, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Starting in verse 23 of chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, completely sufficient for our lives. Amen? Father, we ask that you would help us to hear your word this morning, to believe your word, to love your word, and to obey your word. Amen. Um... Have you ever been at like a social event or just having a conversation with a, a group of people where no matter what the conversation always goes back to this one person? They're, they're the person in the conversation. They can always bring the conversation back to themselves, what they've done, where they've been, what they're doing, what they think about a particular topic. It's a very me-centered approach to having a group conversation. And... Uh, That's how a lot of us read our Bibles, right? We have this me-centered lens through which we read the Scripture. And when we have that me-centered lens, we come to a text like or a story like David and Goliath, 
And all of a sudden now the story is about us needing to conquer our own giants instead of about God and how he conquers our enemies. You come to the Lord's Prayer with a me-sitter lens and now you think, oh, this is my prayer instead of recognizing that this is a prayer for all of God's people. You come to a text like this morning's text with a me-sitter lens and you might think it's more about you when in reality this text is supremely about God. You see, this morning's text, it does deal with our sanctification, us being found holy and blameless on the last day, that's true, but this morning's text is really a benediction wherein Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians in their sanctification by pointing them away from themselves, their own strength, their own ability, and pointing them back to God, the one who called them in the first place, and his strength, and his ability, and his faithfulness. So with that in mind, I want you to know that this morning's sermon is really not going to talk a whole lot about our sanctification. Uh, We already talked about that at length. I don't know if you remember back in chapter 3. Just turn back there with me. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. This is a benediction that comes halfway through the letter, and it's almost the same thing as this morning's text. It says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another, and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Yeah, so we've already pretty much talked about being found blameless at the coming of the Lord. So this morning, we're going to look at the God aspect of the text. We're going to try to focus our attention on what Paul is saying about who God is. So I want to tell you, in this morning's sermon, I am less concerned with showing you how God will make you holy, and I'm more concerned with helping you cling to the promise that God will make you holy. Does that make sense? Okay, let's dive into it. I've got four points for you this morning. Note takers, here they are. Point number one, the God of peace. Point number two, the God of holiness. Point number three, the God who keeps. Point number four, the God of power. The God of peace, holiness, the God who keeps, and the God of power. So point number one, the God of peace. Hey, where's Will? Hey, good job on the water today, buddy. Much better than last week, man. You're really making strides. As Paul begins this benediction, he refers to God as the God of peace. That's the title he receives. What? Why peace? Why not the God of wrath? Why not the God of holiness? I mean, this is about our holiness. Why doesn't he say, may the God of holiness help you to be holy? Why does he say the God of peace? Well, in the Bible, peace and the peace of God is closely correlated to comfort and to order. You can really see this when you see the way Paul contrasts peace and disorder in 1 Corinthians 14. Listen listen to the contrast here. He says, for God is not a God of confusion, disorder, chaos, but a God of peace. As you know, confusion creates chaos, and chaos robs us of peace. Now, the Thessalonian church is in kind of a state of disorder. They're battling chaos, confusion, right? They're enduring persecution from outside of the church, and they're also wrestling with doctrinal controversies inside of the church. When's the day of the Lord? Has it already come? Did we miss it? What about the dead 
who died before he came back, are they going to be raised? What do we... They're, they're really going through it. Now put yourself in Paul's shoes, the, the wise pastor, the good shepherd. If you're trying to help move them out of a state of chaos into a state of peace with God and one another, how do you do it? How do you approach them? Do you approach them like a drill sergeant? You know, I said to be at peace. You know, trusting God is going to be okay. Just barking the orders. Maybe you approach them like a seminary professor, you know, with some big words and cleverly articulated arguments about some very nuanced theological stuff. I don't know. I think if you were a wise pastor, you might just help your people by finding a way to help them anchor their trust, their security, their sanctification in God himself. You might remind the people that although they are in the midst of turmoil, the God who has called them is in his very nature the God of peace. You see, in the Old Testament, God is uh, very fond of saying, be holy as I am holy, right? It's just all over the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but all over the Old Testament. And what God is doing there is he's saying, listen, you're not holy, I am holy, and when I call you to myself, I'm calling you into my holiness, and you will be like me as I call you to myself. That's kind of what God is doing here this morning in this text. He says, I am a God of peace. You are in a state of confusion, disorder. And as I've called you to myself, I'm calling you into that peace. God is a God of peace. He is the God who calms the storm. He's the God who delivers us in our oppression. He is the one who conquers our enemies. God is the queller of chaos. Let me give you another example of where Paul uses this title, God of Peace. And he uses it in kind of an unexpected place. Listen to what Paul says uh, in Romans 16, 20. And this is the same kind of thing, by the way. It's a benediction. He says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is very weird. Why does he call God the God of peace before he talks about destroying Satan? I mean, why doesn't he call him the God of power or the God of victory? Why doesn't he say the Lord of hosts, right? In the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts is this title that's used of Yahweh to connote his ability to vanquish all of God's enemies, to lead the heavenly host into battle. So as he tells these Roman Christians, God is going to destroy Satan, why doesn't he call him that? Why does he call him the God of peace? Because what he's saying is, God is the one who will destroy the one who is causing chaos. And in so doing, he will give you peace. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians in this morning's text. And not for nothing, this is exactly what he's saying to you this morning. He is your God of peace. Lay your anxiety to rest. Be hopeful. Establish yourself in the confidence of God because the God of peace has already given you peace with himself through Jesus and he will help you to fully realize that peace until he calls you home to be with him in perfect peace forever. Point number two, the God of holiness. All right, what I'm about to say next is gonna seem like it doesn't need to be said. 
just because it's so obvious. I'll tell you what I found. I found that sometimes those are the things that need to be said the most, okay? So here goes. God will sanctify us completely because he cares about our sanctification. Yeah, that, that's, that's not really like a aha moment. That's not, you know, a big dramatic reveal. That's not a piercing insight. Let me say it another way see if I can really get you with this one, okay? God will make his people holy because he desires holiness in them. Yeah, it doesn't really land, right? It just seems so obvious. It's like a truism. It's so true. It doesn't need to be said. But let me tell you, while this may seem like a very basic idea to you, there are a lot of self-professing Christians who don't understand this. They don't understand that God desires for his people to be holy. We all know that the gospel says, come as you are, right? All, any good evangelist says, hey, you don't have to fix yourself before you come to Christ. And if you wait till everything is all fixed and worked out before you come to Christ, you'll never come. So we say, come as you are, because Jesus says, come as you are. But a lot of Christians don't know that Jesus doesn't stop there. The gospel call is not come as you are and stay as you are. It's come as you are and let Jesus change you into who you are meant to be, who you were created to be, who he's calling you to be in himself. The gospel says come as you are, broken, damaged, hurt, sinful. But you cannot stay that way if you belong to me. To misunderstand or to reject or to neglect this aspect of the gospel is to do damage to the vital organs of the gospel. Let me, let me show you this very clear connection from Scripture. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. L listen to the logic that Paul employs in this verse. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He died for her to purchase her. This is the heart of the gospel. Why? So that he might sanctify her. So that he might cleanse her. So that he might purify her. You know? It's like, why did you pick up that homeless man on the side of the road? So that I could bring him home, give him a bath, help him find a job, get him a place where he can stay in the warmth, teach him skills so that he can exist in society, share the gospel with him. The reason why God saved us is so that he would sanctify us and make us into the image of his son. This is a really, really big deal. So as we talk this morning about God's faithful, faithfulness and his sovereignty and sanctification, I just want to make sure that we don't get ahead of ourselves, okay? I want to make sure that we pause and that we understand that God is committed to the sanctification of every single person in this room who is a Christian. If he has called you, and if he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you, he is committed to seeing you all the way through the process. You know, people like to fight about the doctrine of predestination. You know, what does it all mean, and what are the implications of that for my free will? But listen to the way that Paul talks about predestination in Romans 8. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, Listen, if you're here this morning and you know that you're a believer, you know it, but sometimes you wonder, you wonder how you can make it all the way home. 
you just feel like the day of the Lord is so far away. You, you feel like the sin in your life is too big, like it can't be conquered. Your doubts are too much. Your anxiety is too strong. Remember this. Anchor yourself in this truth. Jesus died for your sanctification. It's not just your justification that's been accomplished by Christ on the cross and that will be applied to you. It's also everything that comes after. Jesus didn't give his life for you only to leave you behind on the battlefield. When I was about four, uh, I was at a friend's house swimming and when there was no adult around, I jumped in the pool to show that I could swim in the deep end, whether or not I could swim. (laughs) And so I began to drown And uh, I was on my way down to the bottom of the pool when uh, the dad of the house jumped in and grabbed me and he pulled me up from the almost bottom of the deep end. He took me to the edge of the water. He lifted me up and put me on the side of the pool and laid me down and helped me get my breath again. If, If I would have been at the bottom of the pool and he would have come down to the bottom of the deep end and grabbed me, and swam back up and got me right to the edge of the swimming pool, pulled me out of the water, got me right to the edge, and then let me go and sink back down to the bottom. Could you say that he ever really saved me at all? Of course not. This is also true of Jesus in the gospel. He doesn't just pull us up from the bottom of the pool. He takes us all the way. Point number three. The God who keeps. Most of us, uh, if we're being honest, we fear transparency, right? We don't want to let people in. We don't want to show people who we really are. We don't want to open ourselves up to others because we feel like if people ever really got to know us, if they ever got to see the real us, the warts and all, that they wouldn't want us. They wouldn't love us. We feel like if we're vulnerable, we feel like if we're transparent, we'll, we'll, we'll be vulnerable. We feel like, man, if they really got to know the real me, they would walk away, they would cut off ties, they would end the relationship. And to be fair to us in those fears, we feel that way because many times we have opened ourselves up to others. We have let them in, let them see the mess that we are, and they've gone, this is too much. I don't want to have anything to do with this. I'm out. They've cut ties, walked away from the relationship. Because humans and our relationships are fickle, delicate, superficial things. Most of our love is conditional in nature. But then there's Jesus. Friends, do you know that Jesus knows every bad thing about you? Do you know that? Like, that thing that you're hiding that you hope that nobody finds out about, that you just kind of hope to take to your grave that like kind of keeps you up at night, that sometimes when you're laying in bed, you come back to think about it and it haunts you. You know that Jesus knows about that. He's not ignorant of these things. You know, we're like the woman at the well. We want to keep our big sins hidden when we encounter Jesus, but Jesus knows, okay? We can't hide anything from God. And here's the most amazing thing. He knows all of that, and he doesn't leave us. To the contrary, he knows those things and he loves us all the more. He presses in, he pursues a relationship with us. And the question that I have for you this morning is why? 
Is it because of something inherently worthy in us? Is there something in you that makes Jesus go, you know what? I see how terrible and how sinful you are in all these many ways, but I think that there's gold underneath that. And that's why I'm going to stay in this relationship with you. I don't think so. I think if, if you're honest and you do a self-assessment, not only just how you know yourself personally, but also what the Bible says about who we are in our sin, the answer to why Jesus stays committed to us, it cannot be because of anything inherent in us. It can't be due to our own worthiness. It has to be because of something about who God is and His very nature. Now, in verse 24 of this morning's text, I think Paul tells us why Jesus is so doggedly committed to his people, sinful though we are. Look at verse 24. It says, he who calls you is faithful. Why does Jesus stay committed to you when you don't stay committed to him? Because he is faithful. Now, in order to understand, really to get at the heart of what Paul means when he says that God is faithful, I just want to ask you a question that I think will kind of peel back the layers of this onion here. I think that'll give us a, a piercing insight into what this faithfulness means. So let me ask you this. Honest self-assessment. Do you think that you are faithful? If you could describe yourself, and I'm not talking about, like, yeah, if I grade on a curve, you know, like compared to other people, compared to Hitler, I'm doing pretty good, you know? I mean, like, truly faithful, would you describe yourself as faithful? And because we are so prone to be overly generous to ourselves and our self-assessments, I would like to ask you a couple of diagnostic questions to help you be more honest with yourself. Every member of this church who has joined the church has agreed to live out our church covenant. And part of that covenant says that you will be here and you'll gather with the saints unless providentially hindered, you know, you throw up in the car on the way here. But other than that, you should be here exercising your ministry to the body, okay? Have you remained faithful to that covenant? Are you going to tell me that there hasn't been a Sunday where you could have been here and you just chose to stay home? It also says that you'll agree to pray for the members of the church. How would you grade your faithfulness along those lines? It says that if you're going to be a member of this church, you will abstain from injurious speech. That's gossip, slander, you know, things like that. How, how are you doing on that? Let's just move, move away from the local church. What about on your job? What about in your career? Have you ever stolen company time? Maybe you've taken something from the supply room without permission. Maybe you've engaged, engaged in some other form of ethical behave, unethical behavior on your job that I couldn't begin to understand because I don't know your career field. But if your boss knew about it, he would consider you an unfaithful employee. You ever done anything like that? What about faithfulness in sharing the gospel? Every Christian has been called to carry out the Great Commission. Can you say that you've never failed to share the gospel with someone because you were embarrassed? There was some fear of man in your heart and you just couldn't pull the trigger and tell someone the greatest news in the world? What about stewardship? You think about all the time and talent and treasure and health 
your sexuality, everything that God has given to you to steward for his name, can you say that you've been faithful with all that he's given you? If you looked at your bank account, what do you think it would say about your faithfulness? If you're married, have you remained faithful to your spouse? Now, before anybody rushes to go, Sean, how dare you ask me a question like that? How could you ever, I would never, I couldn't possibly. Let me remind you that according to Jesus, faithfulness in marriage is a matter of the heart. Can you honestly say that you've, since you've been married, never had lustful thoughts to someone who's not your husband or wife? That you've never lingered too long on a picture? That you've never looked at pornography? That you've never cheated on your spouse? As I ask you these diagnostic questions, my fear is that you're sitting there and you're grading yourself. Okay, out of those five, he only dinged me on two, but like three of them I'm good on. And if my average is right, that's like a C plus, I'm good. Like as far as faithfulness goes, I'm like B minus range. That's, hey, you know, D's get degrees, so I'm straight. That's not what I'm hoping to accomplish here. What I'm hoping to accomplish is that if you look at a thousand different things in your life, you'll see that, no, friend, you are not faithful. Not as faithful as you could be. Neither am I. Ask my wife. But God is perfectly faithful. Contrast you and your unfaithfulness with God and his faithfulness. God has never promised to do something and then changed his mind. Out of laziness, out of spite, out of fear for financial incentives. God has never made a commitment that he has failed to keep. God has never overcommitted and underdelivered. God has never started something that he was not capable of finishing. Friends, do you realize that God has never broken a promise? Never. Not once. Friends, God is not like us, He is faithful. And if our sanctification depended on our faithfulness to God, we would never make it to heaven. We would never grow in our Christ-likeness. But the good news that I have for you this morning is that your sanctification ultimately does not depend on your faithfulness. It depends on God and His faithfulness. Let me qualify this. I'm not saying that you can just live a completely unfaithful Christian life and God's going to take care of your mess. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that as you strive to be more like Jesus, and you fail along the way, your rock-solid assurance is not in your minor successes, and your doubt should not be rooted in your failures along the way. The way that you think about your sanctification should be wholly rooted in the fact that God is committed to seeing you all the way through. Even when you fail as a Christian because of Jesus, you fail in the right direction. You fail towards Christ-likeness. Listen to this kind of contrast, really stated explicitly in 2 Timothy. He says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. Throughout the entire Old Testament, uh, God is pictured as a husband to his bride, the nation of Israel. And his bride is 
often, oftentimes in the Old Testament, referred to as a whore. She is completely unfaithful to her husband, God. But here's the thing. As you're reading the Old Testament, I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I remember reading the Old Testament was really difficult for me, and I loved the stories. And as I would read chronologically through the stories, I remember it would always, I would always be like, Israel, how could you do this again? Right? Like, God came along and saved you. He raised up judges. He called you to repentance. He rescued you from Egypt. Like, he supplied your every need. And every time you think, oh, they're going to get it this time, they don't get it. And I'm just like, man. And then I was like, oh, that's me. Okay, all right. I'm not going to judge you too harshly. But throughout the whole of the Old Testament, the bride is unfaithful and the husband never leaves. He never rips up the marriage certificate. He never takes his wedding ring off in a fit of anger and throws it in the woods. Even when he's furious with them because of their sin, he never draws up the divorce papers. Over the course of our marriage, me and Amber, we've opened up our home to uh, uh, drug addicts on several occasions, invited them to come live with us so we could minister to them in in a close way. And let me tell you, ministry to addicts can be uh, very rewarding. But if I'm being honest, it can also be really, really unpleasant. Uh, we've been stole from, lied to, manipulated, deceived, and even sometimes embarrassed. But when you're carrying out this kind of ministry, you cannot decide to continue or to give up based on the actions of the addict. Right? If you approach ministry to a drug addict in that way, you'll find that you give up almost as soon as you begin. Your commitment to serving an addict in love has to be grounded in something outside of their worthiness. Well, friends, we are sin addicts. And God's commitment to helping us become spiritually sober has to be grounded in something outside of ourselves. And praise God it is. It's grounded in the very nature of God himself who is faithful to keep all of his promises, even the promise that he made in eternity's past to save a sinner like you. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? This is our God. In verse 24 of this morning's text, Paul says that God is faithful to those whom he has called. That's the language of election. That means in eternity's past, before God created the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars, before he even thought about you, I mean, excuse me, before your parents even thought about you, he made a decision to save you. You know what comes after election, right? Calling, you know what comes after that? Predestination. That means that God so ordered the entire universe down to the very atom in such a way as to bring about and accomplish your salvation. And then he didn't stop there. He sent his son to pay the price for your sins, to pay the price that you could have never paid, to live the righteous life that you could have never lived, to purchase your salvation. All of that is part of God's promise to you. And it began before the worlds were even created. So when Paul says, he who calls you is faithful, I don't just want you to skim over that. I want you to understand the magnitude 
of the promise that God has made to you in Christ and what it means that he has fulfilled that promise and will fulfill that promise on your behalf. Friends, God's commitment to display his faithfulness through you is really good news for you. It's the anchor anchor that scripture tells us to cling to when we become fearful or anxious about making it to the last day. Is that you? Do you ever, you ever feel that fear, that anxiety? Uh, I don't know if I can make it to the last day. If you feel that way, Scripture tells you, meditate on God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. And don't think about yourself. Think about that. And that will give you assurance. Listen to the way the author of Hebrews says it in Hebrews 10.23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. In the context of Hebrews, that is, don't give up on Jesus. Hold fast, cling to Jesus, and do so without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Friends, this is so cliche, and it's so corny, but it's so good. I have to say it, and I have to remind you. Hold fast to Jesus, and as you do so, remember that the only reason you can hold on to him is because he's holding on to you. Amen? Corny but true? Okay. Point number four, the God of power. At the end of this morning's text, at the end of verse 24, there's a little, what seems like a, just a little add on there. He says, Paul says, he, referring to God, will surely do it. Paul is so confident that God will make sure that these Thessalonian Christians will be found holy and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can he be so confident? How can he speak with such confidence? You know, uh, it's often said of me that I'm often confident but seldom right, you know? (laughs) My confidence is misplaced. But Paul doesn't feel that way about God. Think about about yourself in, in your own confidence to fulfill your promises. I'll I'll use myself as an example. Uh, I can certainly plan to remain faithful to the promises that I make, but that doesn't mean that I'll actually have the ability to keep those promises, right? So let me give you an example. When I first got into jujitsu, I made a commitment to do a whole bunch of tournaments, right? It was very important for your development. I was like, okay, I'm going to go compete uh, three times in three weeks. This is big. I'm going to do it. And then, right before the first competition, I got a not-so-insignificant injury, you know. The spirit was willing, but my ligaments and tendons were weak, okay? I couldn't, couldn't do it. Even the baby didn't like that one. Uh, I think that's a pretty good picture of our inability to keep some of the promises that we make, right? The spirit is willing, says Jesus, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is like, hey guys, I need you guys to stay awake and pray for me because I'm about to go through something terrible, And the disciples are like, Jesus, we love you. We got this. We promise. We're going to be awake. We're going to be praying. Jesus comes back. They're asleep. Jesus says, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but Satan is scheming. The spirit is willing, but the world is working against us. We can strive to remain faithful, but we cannot have the kind of confidence in, in our faithfulness that Paul seems to have in the faithfulness of God in this verse. Well, what's the difference? The difference is the power of God. See, we are weak, but God is strong. We are frail, 
frail creatures, but God is durable. We're finite. We're limited in our energy and resources, but not God. Friends, do you understand that God loves us, his people, with an invincible love? With a powerful love that cannot be overcome, it cannot be broken, it cannot be defeated? If that's true, then I just want to ask you, what is it this morning that's got you feeling like you won't be found blameless on the last day? You're saying, Sean, I I belong to Jesus, but I just don't know how I'm going to make it there. What do you fear will leave you defeated on this battlefield? Is it anger? Sean, I just, I just don't know if I can get a hold on my anger. I just don't know. I just, every time I think I'm making progress, I just, I can't do it. I want to, but I can't. God is more powerful than your anger issues. I promise you. Maybe it's, it's greed, you know, just... I just, I can't help it. I I have these issues. I just feel like I need to have security. I want money. God is more powerful than your greed. Maybe it's lust. You know, Freud said there's nothing more powerful than sex. That is the thing that drives all the forces in this world, and surely that cannot be conquered. God can conquer that. Friends, I can speak about the power of God so confidently for a couple of different reasons. The first reason is because I remember my own testimony. I remember my life before Jesus saved me. Every single person who knew me, who really got to know me, said that I was either going to prison or that I was going to die. I was a drug addict. I was a drug dealer. I was a pimp. And I robbed people. That was my life. I was angry all the time. I was driven by lusts of the flesh. All I cared about was money, sex, power, and drugs. I had been institutionalized in every kind of institution you can imagine. I was in a halfway house. I was in a rehab program. I was in a bad kids boot camp. You know, the ones like on Maury where they send you there and the guys yell at you. I was there. Mental institutions, medications, therapy sessions. I even did the thing where they put the needles in you, you know. You hit the right pressure point and maybe I'll stop hitting people in the face. I was sent for a year to a wilderness institution. Everybody thought that they had the answer. Everybody thought that they had a way to fix me. And every time, it only got worse. And then I met Jesus. He did in a moment in my heart what nobody else could do over the course of years. No therapy, no medication, no cleverly designed program could break me and could make me a functional member of this society. And then I met Jesus, and he could. That's one reason why I can speak about the power of God so confidently, because I've seen it displayed in my own life. Another reason is because I'm, I'm not looking forward to a day when I can see the power of God and put on full display. I actually can be so confident because the power of God has already been put on full display. We weren't there for it, but it happened. It was put on full display when Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave, when he was raised up into the heavens and seated at the right hand of God the Father. I can be confident in that power. Now, when Jesus was on the cross before he went to the grave, 
he uttered these words, the words of the psalmist. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're here this morning, and if you feel like that, if you feel like God has forsaken you, if you feel like God won't raise you up on the last day, if you feel so discouraged in your walk with the Lord that maybe you just feel like you could die, friends, I want to encourage you to look away from yourself and look up at the cross and look down at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And when you do, you will have confidence that nothing whatsoever will keep you from that last day. As the Apostle Paul was sitting in chains as a prisoner of Rome, soon to meet his death at the hands of an executioner, he wrote these words to one of his beloved churches that he had planted. He said this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, God began the work. God will finish the work. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe what you have shown us in your word today. Help us to cling to it. Help us to trust in you. Make us more holy, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit and for the glory of your holy name. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we sing together.